Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. You find your way back to your seats. We are going to read from Scripture. We have two readings today. One is from Genesis chapter 3. One is from Lamentations chapter 3 from the lectionary this morning. And uh, Keith is going to lead us into both of those. So let's give our attention to that. And I apologize that the coffee is out, but that is a symbol of growth for the parish. So this is a positive metric, despite the fact you don't have coffee. All right, here's, here's Genesis. Um, the woman saw that the tree was beautiful with delicious food and that the tree would provide wisdom. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. During that day's cool evening breeze, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord God in the middle of the garden's trees. The Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? Now this is Lamentations. The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall. My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Thanks, Keith. By the way, there was never a coffee shortage until the fall. That was when sin entered the world. People started (laughs) running out of coffee. Um, All right. Well, we are this fall in our theme of really sitting with the big story of God from Genesis chapter 1 through Revelation chapter 22. What is this story that is being told all around us uh, and also that we enter into in our own lives? And we're really sitting with a question in the midst of all of this. The question is, what is a Christian? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And that's a question that is answered in radically different ways in all kinds of places uh, in our society right now. And so it is so important that we reclaim the great story of God and look to Jesus who guides us into what does it mean to follow Jesus. And so that's what we're trying to do. This is a story that is told in five acts or a drama that is told in five acts. This is the work of N.T. Wright that we're borrowing from, who's a great uh, New Testament theologian. And uh, we've already talked about Act 1, creation. In the beginning, God created. And we've talked about Act 5, recreation, that in the end, all will be well. And we've begun dipping our toes into Act 2, the fall of Genesis 3, the fall into sin. Let me catch us up uh, briefly on where we've been and where we're going from here. So when the story starts, Act 1... When the story ends, Act 5, 
In both those scenes, God is with us and everything is right and blessed and holy. Everything is right and blessed and holy. And so there is what we call shalom, which is the wholeness and holiness of God and God's world. When the Bible starts, what we read is that everything in the world was very good. And I want us to just imagine that for a minute. Can you imagine this world, everything very good? What a beautiful world God has made. What a beautiful hope that echoes inside of us that we might more and more see that become reality again. And a very good world is only possible when there is right relationship and right ordering of creation. And so there is the creator. There are the humans. There is creation. And we need to keep that proper order because if we disorder those things, we end up disordering the world. And so what happens is this, this right relationship with, with God and with one another and with creation, the right ordering and stewardship of creation is at the heartbeat of what it means to be made in God's image. And that's the backdrop of Genesis 1 and 2, and ultimately then it's the backdrop of Genesis 3, which is the beginning of Act 2 in our story. We, in the midst of uh, wanting to order well God's creation, the problem is we tend to hunger for precisely the wrong things. And, and Genesis 3 is the story of all of us. We have disordered affections, and as a result, they disorder the world and the relationships around us, the relationships we have with God and one another. And so Adam and Eve grab the one thing, the one thing that God has not freely given is the one thing they want to grab. And boy, if that isn't my life sometimes, right? And then this taking, this usurping of God and God's wisdom is what we call sin. And so sin is simply the rupture of shalom. This good, holy, whole world God made is ruptured, and sin becomes the force that is behind the fracturing of God's good world. It is the force and condition we are afflicted with. It is what happens when we misplace God-crafted hungers and direct them instead toward lesser loves and lesser loyalties and lesser things. And so part of the reason the story of Genesis starts, I believe, in a specific place, a garden, in a specific time, seven days, is because I think this is bearing witness to the fact that we have to work out creation in our own place and time, right? God did not give us a theological bullet list about creation. He placed it in a garden. He placed it around a certain season and time. And in that same way, in my place and in my time, I have to find God walking through my own garden. You have to find God walking through your own garden, calling out to you, asking, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? And when we hear God's voice echoing in the cool of the evening, but instead channel what we, what we hunger for in that voice, we channel it to lesser things, what happens is we end up sinning. We act sinfully. We end up misplaced. And eventually we end up displaced out of the garden, east of Eden. We are put out of the garden and out of the context that God made us for, out of the context that God made all of those longings for. 
we have in our own lives then retold the Genesis 3 story. We do this over and over and over. And so a Genesis 3 life is a life that is out of place. It's not where it was created to be. It's a notch off. And I think we all know what I'm talking about as I say that. It feels out of place. We hunger to return home, and yet what we feel is that there are flaming swords and angels blocking our way. We can't seem to get back. And this is the lament that we heard in our Lamentations passage that Keith read. What, what the writer says is, the thought of my homelessness is wormwood and gall. This deep, bitter longing for something that feels like it has been lost due to my own distorted affections. But the writer continues and he says, but I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Not in Act 1, not in Act 2, not in Act 3, not in Act 5. It never ceases. The mercies never come to an end. And so we remember that the good news of this giant story is that Genesis 3 is not how the story begins. Genesis 3 is not how the story is going to end. And sin does not get the first word or the final word. This is a story centered on God and God's promises, God and God's creation, God and God's recreation. It is not a story centered on sin. And so we are a part of something that's not just about a removal of sin story. We're not trying to just solve a sin problem. We're trying to get in on the restoration of shalom. That's what God's busy doing. And of course, that includes the removal of sin, the healing of sin, but it's much bigger than just that. And so this brings us to one of the great paradoxes and mysteries of uh, the spiritual tradition that we are a part of, of uh, one of the big miracles of God's big story. It's this idea called the Felix Culpa. This is a theological idea tested to from the church fathers and mothers onward. We see Ambrose and Augustine and Aquinas talk about this. And we see this in one of the early church liturgies, these words, Oh, happy fault that earned for us so great a redeemer. The fortunate fall, that's what Felix Culpa means, fortunate fall, that earned for us so great a redeemer. In other words, what this is saying is that there are fortunate consequences of an unfortunate event which would not have been possible had the unfortunate event never happened in the first place. Something has happened. The great mystery is that somehow through the resurrection of Jesus which heals the fall of Genesis 3, It leaves us and God's people and God's world better off than if the fall had never happened in the first place. In some great redemptive miracle, God takes even the worst of the story and channels it into the healing of the story. It's a happy fall. It's a fortunate fall because it earned for us so great a redeemer. Now, that is not to make light of the impact of the fall. But it is to say that it is important that we root ourselves in a story in which everything that happens can be redeemed by this God. Look at how Augustine says it. He says, uh, God judged it better to bring good out of evil than not to permit any evil to exist, right? If you wonder, like, well, why did God even make a capacity for Adam and Eve to reach for that fruit, right? Because God's interested in a story with redemption, right? Well, look at how Julian of Norwich says it so beautifully. First, there is the fall, and then we recover from the fall, and both are the mercy of God. Wow. Wow. Okay. Here's a way we might think of this. When I was four years old, 
I was at preschool, and there was like this little like rope divider thing, and then there was like concrete, and doing what a four-year-old did, I grabbed the rope and I spun around it, and doing what happens to every four-year-old, I split my chin open on the concrete, right? And in my recollection, this was a dramatic moment where blood was spurting everywhere, and there's, you know, paramedics running over. I think, actually, uh, there was like a Band-Aid, and my mom came, you know? But in my mind, this was like an ER situation. Um, but I still have the scar. And my dad did the same thing when he was a kid, and he still has the scar. And the scar represents this wound that has become part of a larger story. In time, it has been healed. It still bears witness to something that went wrong, something that caused genuine pain. But now it is wrapped up in a larger story or perhaps at a deeper level. Many of you know my story. I went through a three-year period of really severe pain, sudden onset, chronic pain, and I could hardly function for three years. And I was... Uh, really lost for a season and really unsure of God for a season and hurting deep down. And yet, uh, that worst thing that's ever happened in my story is something I would never, ever trade. Um, never trade. Because in it, in that suffering, in that pain, God came near in ways that are intimate and mysterious. I don't have, I can't tell you logically, but it's like God draws near in the suffering, in the darkness, in the pain, in ways we cannot experience otherwise, and we are made better for having gone through it. We are made more whole for having gone through it than if it never would have happened. If I had just sailed through with never having that pain, I would never have experienced this redemptive part of my story and so the worst thing that happened becomes the best thing that happens because a wound that is so tender is becoming healed such that we might become wounded healers in the world. Yeah. We might be able to show up and say, we know what God does with pain. The Felix culpa. All right, so how does our story go from falling of sin the falling into sin, which is act three, back into the rising, the resurrection, the homecoming of Acts, uh, act four and five. I mean, if sin is moving us out of place, out of the garden of belovedness, uh, and into the wilderness of wandering, how do we come home again? How do we come home again? And I want to say this, I want to spend a few minutes just talking theologically, and then we'll take a turn towards some practical spiritual formation stuff as we wind this down. But first, theologically, uh, I want to say that we are only equipped for a wilderness journey, an act two journey, when we are rooted in the truth of act one. I cannot move well into the wilderness without knowing of my belovedness, because I will wrongly show up in the wilderness. I will wander in the wilderness in the, the, with the lesser voices echoing in my mind. And so we have to root ourselves back in Act 1 before we can rightly deal with the sin of Act 2. Before sin could muffle the sound, God had already spoken a better word over all of us. Act 1 begins with this idea that God creates good things. God creates good things. That's how it all starts. 
Sin enters the story and muffles those good things, but what is still true is that God said, let us make humankind in our image. And God is good. And so if we are created in the image of God, we are created good. Now, it is obvious and it is inarguable that sin has sunk its teeth into our reality in really deeply entrenched ways, right? We all experience this. Whether you are looking at one of the oldest elders in your life or one of the youngest children in your life, you can go like, oh, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> you know, that baby's been born for like three minutes and they're already like screaming, demanding, you know, whatever. Uh, and, and we see it in ourselves, we see it in our society. Sin is undeniable and scripture says no one escapes involvement. No, not one. Not one. All of us have sinned. All of us are involved in this enterprise of sin. This is what is theologically referred to as original sin. If you look up in a systematic theology book, you'll get this idea of original sin, that all of us are fundamentally involved in the fallenness of this world. And sin is real, and we need to grapple with it seriously, and we're going to continue doing that over the weeks ahead. But we also need to name clearly that before there was original sin in, Acts, uh, in Genesis 3, there was original goodness in Genesis 1. There is a blessing that precedes the brokenness. And we have told the sin story so much that original sin has come to define and dominate much of our theology in America, and it's what we talk about, it's what we center on. But what we're ending up doing is honoring the uh, the, the, the power of sin's corruption more than we are honoring the power of God's creation. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. God's creation is stronger than the fall. And so I want to say this. What is most deeply true about you is your image of God core. The divine spark, this candle that is actually melting all over this table now that I notice. <laughs> But the flame endures, right? <laughs> what an image. What an image. The divine spark is alive in you. You are not depraved. And you are not debased. And you are not despised by God. You are beloved before eternity began. Michael Cusick talks about your good heart. Think about that. You have a good heart. You have a good heart. And all of the addiction and the trauma and the regret and the failure and the disappointment does not change that you have a good heart. Now, just as Eden was good but not perfect, so our hearts are good, but they're not perfect, yeah. right? They're, we are infallible. Uh, sorry, we, wait, no, I said that wrong. We are, we are, fa <laughs> heresy check. Uh, we are, <laughs> David, I think we're going with first service podcast. Um, <laughs> we, aren't, we aren't infallible. We need forgiveness. We need formation. We need to be healed. But let's look at these words from Kenneth Tanner. These are good ones. You ready for this? You do not have a sin nature. You have a human nature that participates in sin. Contrary to your good creation in the divine image, 
Your participations in evil are not who you are, but are tragic negations of your created human goodness. Sin is not our nature, but instead a denial of our true nature. And he goes on. While it's evident that the sin of our ancestor Adam has wide-reaching destructive consequences in everyone everywhere, Christians are the ones who trust that the obedience of the human God is greater than Adam's transgression. The effects of Christ's good humanity will override every evil in us and in creation. This is a basic Christian trust. We are not our sins. They do not define the human person. The human God does. Woo! Goodness. Yeah. And so what then is the Christian life? And we'll turn towards something practical in our final five minutes here. And this is an imperfect image. We kind of wrestled with it in staff meeting this week. So, but take it for however helpful it is for you. I want you to imagine your life as a mirror. And it's crafted in the reflection and likeness of God. So that when people look at you, the whole you, what they see is God bouncing back at them. Reflections, facets of God bouncing back at them. Why? Because you were made in God's image. So as people gaze at you, the, the mirror of God in you bounces back. And so the fall of Genesis 3 means that we have widespread layers of mud and ash and soot that have been tossed onto our mirrors. And as a result, uh, it, this is a real reality. Like, it, it's real. We can't deny it. The presence of all of that rubble is distorting the image of God that would otherwise be shining through. And so you're getting distorted pictures of the image of God because I've got all this stuff piled on top of my mirror. The mirror itself is not the problem. The state, the condition of the mirror is the problem. It needs to be cleansed. It needs to be restored. And so that is the work of God. He comes to us in order to restore us back into that pure image of God that can reflect God well to the world. Now, sadly, we often reduce this to a one-sided, one-time spiritual transaction, right? Your, your mirror is, is not clean, so raise your hand, say a prayer, be saved. And, and there's some truth in that. But what ends up happening often is when we do the transaction with God thing, nothing in our life actually changes, right? And now all that rubble is still on top of my mirror, and I can't image God well to you. I can't be who God has asked me to be for you. And this is why we have so many people who are born again, but their lives don't reflect, you know, much of uh, what we see in Jesus. Uh, I, I, and so what we have to do is say, instead, there's got to be a better way, and I think the Christian story is better understood not as a transaction, but as an invitation to a lifelong journey of healing and restoration and salvation. The Christian life is saying yes to life with God in which God has taken all the daily stuff of my life right? The failures and the time I got fired and my relationships and my, my besetting struggles and all of these things. God's at work in all of this in order to restore us into the image of God. The fall disrupted our ability to see and be the image of God, but God has this two-part plan to restore us into the image of God. Part one is this. Jesus came not only to fix the disruption of the fall, 
but to give us a perfect picture of what that mirror is meant to be, right? This is how we, we read in Colossians, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We read in Hebrews, he is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And so when we look at Jesus, we perfectly see God, yeah. right? And then that leads to part two, if I can look at Jesus and perfectly see God, now I have an invitation to become like Jesus that I might be restored into the perfect image of God, right? And so part two is Jesus makes all things new, even us, even us. God's at work in us. And so we enter in a life of mimicry of our Savior, becoming more and more like the image of God we see in Jesus, and this is what we call spiritual formation, that I might be healed and cleansed in order to mirror God anew. Look at what the New Testament bears witness to about the Christian life. We, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being changed into his likeness. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is, and all who have this hope in him purify themselves. They, they allow God to be at work to, to heal that mirror just as he is pure. This one, mind-blowing. His divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness so that you may become participants in the divine nature, right? God is not just interested in a spiritual transaction. God wants to make you godlike. God wants to restore the image of God in you. Because that's how we were made. And so we become healed and cleansed as layer by layer God redeems the fall in our life. And he cleans us, he restores us, he renews us so that God's life shines through. And this is the work of God. It's not the work of us. We don't do it by gritting our teeth and trying hard. But we do it by showing up in cooperation with God. Just as God created the world and asked Adam and Eve to co-create, he recreates our world and he asks us to co-create with him. And so little by little, cooperation by cooperation, obedience by obedience, repentance by repentance, we are entering into a life with God where we're being changed. We're being reformed, renewed. And to the degree that we are made whole, we then get to shine that wholeness to those around us. Yeah. This is how God heals the world, by healing one person at a time, more and more into the image of Christ, so that I can shine that to the people in my life, to the people in my life, to the people in my life. This is how God moves us from act two back to act five. And we get to get in on it by saying yes to a life with God in which Jesus is the perfect picture and I wanna become more like Jesus. Yes. That's the Christian life. All right, let's, let's pray. Um, oh, no, we're not gonna quite pray in the way I was gonna pray. We're gonna do this instead. I wanna linger here for a minute and just get really uh, a chance to do some own heart work here. And so I'll invite you, uh, yeah, thanks, Josh. I'll invite you to just... Uh, Take a big, deep breath, first of all. And as you are able just to get in touch with your own heart, we think of this mirror and this idea that God is at work to cleanse us. And then we ask, how are we cleansed? And scripture says it this way, if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us, to cleanse the layers of the mirror off. And so confession is the first step in us returning to the story and returning to the storyteller. And this morning, rather than our typical liturgical confession, I'm gonna invite you to do your own confession work in your heart. And we'll linger with the first three questions that God asks in scripture, using them as our form of confession this morning. And so the first question is this, in your heart of hearts, where are you? are you really? And who told you that you were naked? Or in other words, Whose voice, even if your own, is getting too much authority in telling you to be ashamed or to hide? is to say, what are you really hungry for? Take some time and talk and confess. hear the assuring words of God. The mercy of God is new every morning. His compassion never fails. Great is his faithfulness. You are forgiven are beloved, you are invited to say yes to the way of Jesus for the sake of the world.